Healthcare on I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Uh, as you know, we focus on a variety of healthcare topics. And uh, last week, I aired an episode with Dr. Emily Landon from University of Chicago, discussing a lot of things pertaining to Omicron, as well as what to do with masking, not masking, kids, vaccinations, myocarditis. Hopefully it was helpful. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, I did come across an article in The Atlantic that caught my attention about uh, a few days ago. The article is titled, it's under category science, and it's titled The CDC's Flawed Case for Wearing Masks in School. It's written by David Zweig, and I read the article, and it's actually pretty interesting. It does talk about how the CDC really overestimated the benefit of masking children in school. And really, I went through the article, and it did catch my attention, as I mentioned, especially the fact that the recommendations of the CDC to mask children in school are in contrast to the recommendations by the European authorities, the European CDC, if you will, that don't recommend masking children. And also it's in contrast to the recommendation of the WHO, the World Health Organization that recommends no masking for children under the age of six, uh, while the CDC here recommends masking school, masking children uh, above the age of two. So, you know, the article actually by uh, David Zweig, uh, who is a journalist, goes through uh, a lot of um, the data, uh, specifically uh, a paper that was actually written um, uh, about uh, comparing schools that uh, implemented mask mandates versus those who did not implement mask mandates uh, uh, in the state of Arizona. So, you know, as I, as you know, in Healthcare Unfiltered, we try to go to the source. And the source means that we actually invite the author and have the author come in and actually discuss with us what he wrote and just go through the data as much as possible. So I invited uh, David Zweig on this podcast to take us through what he actually uh, wrote and pretty much really more uh, along the lines of what, what, type, what type of investigation did David have to do uh, as an investigative journalist to reach the information that he actually uh, uh, reached. So uh, check out the David Zweig's website. Uh, it is David Zweig, Z-W-E-I-G.com. And you'll see also that he has uh, written a book called Invisible, Invisibles, which uh, I will buy. I have not bought it yet. Uh, he is a writer, lecturer, and a musician, but he did tell me that he has not really played music in a while. Anyway, uh, I hope you really enjoy this podcast episode. I hope you enjoy the discussion on uh, on this. Uh, again, this is not a politicized discussion; it has nothing to do with politics whatsoever. These, this is a fact-based uh, discussion about an article about uh, whether masking children in schools is justified or not, and why. Uh, before I air the episode that I taped with David Zweig on Healthcare Unfiltered, I'd like to plug the show by asking you to find it on all podcast outlets. If you don't mind, subscribe to the show, 
write a brief review, rate the show, and check out my website, www.chadinabhan.com. You can message me there. Don't forget to check out the YouTube channel also, uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Subscribe and rate and like. Without further ado, David Zweig on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it is a pleasure to host uh, Mr. David Zweig on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast uh, today. Um, I contacted uh, David after I read his essay in The Atlantic, which you have a link uh, in the podcast note to. Uh, and I read it and I thought he had some provocative thoughts in terms of uh, masking as well as some uh, critical appraisal to CDC studies that supported uh, schools and masking in schools and so forth. So I thought, what's best? Instead of going Twitter back and forth, we need to bring the author on the show and discuss this. David, uh, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Really, thanks for taking the time. Um, I just want to make sure listeners know a little bit about you, who you are, what you do, and, and what got you interested, I guess, in what's going on in terms of the pandemic to the degree that you started writing about it. Uh, well, um, I am a journalist and an author. Um, I've, for a long time, have written about matters related to technology, psychology, science overall, and how they intersect with each other. So I had a lot of familiarity with reading academic journals and trying to translate that material into something that would make sense and be interesting to a regular person. Um, so I was sort of primed, at least in that sort of skill set, before the pandemic began. And, and then once the pandemic began, I was actually in the middle of writing another book. And, um, and I found that I was unable to concentrate, unable to proceed day after day working on a book that was, for the most part, completely removed from this, you know, emergency that was playing out around me. And, um, and that kind of set me on my way. I mean, my sort of uh, tipping point or pivotal event was, as any New Yorker will recall, and perhaps anyone in the States, um, I, I live just north of New York City, um, but you know, we were told that we needed to flatten the curve. They're gonna close the schools because um, we don't, the hospitals are becoming overwhelmed and we need to just flatten the curve, just kind of ease the load on the hospitals. That's why the schools are closed. And that's that. It's like, okay, that sounds reasonable. Um, we don't want the hospitals to be overwhelmed. And then I remember in the middle of April, um, looking at the statistics and the rate of hospitalizations was just dropping off a cliff. It was just like a, you know, like a 45 degree angle going down. Um, don't fact check me on that. Maybe it wasn't 45 degrees, but it was, there was, there was a, an unequivocal downward trend in hospitalizations for some time it, by the middle of April. And I remember talking with a friend and saying, oh, I guess the kids are going to be going back to school, you know, any day now. And he said, they're not going back. I'm like, what do you mean? It, it, they told us we just needed to flatten the curve. The curve has been flattened. I guess they're going to go back to school now. And my friend said, they're not going back. That that wasn't real, the two weeks to flatten the curve. That, 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 was, that was just getting us started. And 
once that happened, I couldn't process that. I couldn't accept that. And that coincided with, um, I, there were a few people who I was following on Twitter, some people who are very smart, who weren't in medicine or public health, but who were tweeting links to some studies and some different things. Maybe it was a study out of Iceland or just some of their early information coming out of China. And all of this information was showing that children were at incredibly low risk. It was an amazing development early on to be aware of. Um, it seemed to be indisputable, you know, that no one was questioning this. And so the, the coupling of the early data coming out of China and these studies out of Iceland and elsewhere showing that this was clear that children, unlike influenza or other um, viruses that had been spread around, children were uniquely spared um, from the worst effects of this disease. And that coupled with the fact that my kids were home alone, staring at a screen in their bedroom all day, and worse so, many, many kids were um, out of school entirely and did not have the good fortune that my children had. So those two factors coupled together um, led me on my path to say, I need to start looking into this stuff. I need to figure out what's going on because this doesn't quite make sense. And I've been on that road ever since. Yeah, thank you, uh, David, for this uh, intro. Uh, before we delve into some of the things that uh, it's hard to cover everything pertaining to the pandemic, so I think we'll focus on a couple of things that you are uniquely interested in. Um, in your background, you're also a musician, and uh, tell us maybe a little about the, the book that you wrote, The uh, Invincibles. Yeah, I mean, I haven't played music in a long time. I mean, other than just messing around at home. So, um, you know, it's, it's in my past. Yeah, I spent about a decade playing music, but I've always loved writing. And um, yes, I, I wrote a nonfiction book called Invisibles, uh, which is about people who are highly skilled um, professionals and what they do, but who generally are um, unrecognized either by the public as a whole or by the end user or, um, for what they do. And, um, and these people, the book is a series of profiles of these types of professionals, and they really are the antithesis and the antidote um, to our culture of uh, where people want recognition and want fame um, and want to be known um, for what they do. And I thought this was really, really fascinating to have people who are really skilled, um, who were very successful, um, and, and most of them tend to be very, very fulfilled that they were doing something that was the opposite of what most of the culture valued and what we were told we needed to do in order to become successful. Well, in all disclosure, I haven't read, but it is on my list right now. So it, all is, right. it is going to be, uh, be, be bought. So, so let, let's talk a little bit. I mean, there's so many aspects of the pandemic, right? And, and it's probably going to be very difficult to cover everything pertaining to, to a one-hour show. But uh, uh, I think from, from the article that, uh, the recent article that I read that you wrote in The Atlantic, I think we, we probably can discuss specifically masking for kids in school, because that is something that you uh, addressed heads, heads on. Um, and we'll talk about that, as well as um, 
I don't know if you want to, I, I know you mentioned about the kids and low risk, and I don't know if we need to talk about vaccinating children or not, but we can probably allude to that a little bit in the conversation. I think there's a lot uh, about this in terms of um, uh, vaccinating children or not, but probably masking kids in school is the thing that was the subject of your recent article. So people will always say, what's the big deal? So, you know, okay, maybe we don't know if masks help or not. But, you know, I mean, it's a throw it on the face and it's not going to hurt. It may not help, but maybe it helps a little bit, tiny bit, and why not? Um, people do say that, um, and other people beg to differ. And I, I think that outside of healthcare um, and perhaps, you know, a few other environments, there are very, very few adults who are wearing a mask for seven or eight hours a day, five days a week, um, outside of, you know, a, a small number of professions. And so I think point number one is the just the inability to have a real understanding or empathy for what kids are doing um, by wearing a mask all day, every day, I think is one component of this. Uh, some people started a campaign called uh, Mask Like a Kid, I think, <laughs> um, where it was saying, hey, you know, you see um, politicians and anyone else, um, you know, going around without a mask on, yet they are the ones making the policies for children um, that if, if you're going to impose this on them, you know, it would be interesting to see them experience this themselves. So I think that's one component of it. There's there are a number of experts um, in uh, education who work in, in reading comprehension and speech and things of that matter, that for younger children, having an adult who's always wearing a mask and for the child themselves, um, this is a real impediment on learning language. Um, even reading itself involves when you're looking at the teacher and you can see the teacher's mouth um, and then, you know, just the sort of audible um, impediment of a mask when someone's speaking. These things do affect children. So just from a, um, an education and pedago pedagogical um, perspective on that you would not want to introduce, no one would voluntarily just introduce this intervention, right? So we know it's not benign because if it was totally benign, then we would have no problem. There would have been an RCT on this years ago. The, the reason why it's never been studied, the effect of masking children for two years is because no, I, no IRB would ever approve such a, such a study five years ago. They would say, why would you make children wear, that, that's terrible, that, that's not gonna work. So the idea that this is just completely benign, it's no problem at all, I think is farcical on its face. And, you know, and the last component of that is a socio-emotional component, which is we are human beings. I mean, this, this should go without saying. We need to see each other's faces. Can you survive without seeing someone's mouth and you know, nose and half their face? Of course you can, it, but, but it is a diminishment. So these things that we're talking about are often things that can't be quantified in a specific way, but, but in a qualitative way, are very obvious and rooted in what it means to be a person and how we socialize and communicate with each other.
And if we thought that masks had absolutely zero problem, then you and I would be wearing masks right now while we did our Zoom. It wouldn't be a problem. Why do why does Jen Psaki, when she goes to the podium um, for White House press conferences, why isn't she wearing a mask? Because it's an impediment. Uh, why does anyone take their mask off in any circumstance that they have the opportunity to do so? Because it's doing something that that's some sort of block, right? So um, I, I think it, it's just farcical to claim. I hope there's no one that claims it's completely benign. Now, the next argument down would be, well, maybe it's not benign. We'd prefer for them not to be on, but it's not a big deal, right? So that's sort of the next level down to say that, well, we understand it's better to not wear one, but considering the cost benefit, you know, we think it's worthwhile. And I think that argument is where kind of um, things where different philosophies about how we want to live our lives and how we want to manage risk come into play. And this is the thing where um, I know you had a guest, a guest on in your um, previous program. This is something where we don't need infectious disease doctors or, or epidemiologists or even public health professionals necessarily telling us about what the correct choice is for our risk benefit scenario. This is a philosophical decision about what people are willing to accept in risk versus what they are willing to accept in the various costs. What the obligation of the infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists and others in public health is to inform the population of what the risks are. And then once the population is well informed, then it is up to them to decide in most circumstances, I, I believe it is up to individual, not all, but most to decide, is this a worthwhile um, risk benefit for us to pursue? I think I think some of the um, I mean, very well put, David, I think some of the folks might say, well, this is all wonderful and great, but but we are faced with a pandemic that we have not really had in 100 years. And, you know, desperate situations call for desperate measures. And, and I think that um, obviously we have not been faced with something like this with hundreds of thousands dying. And um, so so the, the the concept has been that this might prevent airborne uh, virus that could be transmitted from one person to another. And by doing this, we can mitigate, obviously, the damage and, and the death. So some of this... Um, you know, is not just your own personal protection, but you're really protecting others uh, possibly from getting infected by wearing a mask. Yeah, so there are a number of things there that you brought up. And so, right, so we kind of started zoomed out, right, which was, are masks harmful? Is there some sort of cost? Then we zoom in, you know, push the lens in a little bit from there and say, okay, it's established that there's some cost. Otherwise, you know, the press secretary and when people give interviews, they would just leave their masks on. We know there's something there. We know it's <laughs> humans, our natural state is to not have our face covered, that this is how we communicate with each other. So we know it's not nothing. Then the next question is, well, what are the harms? Can we quantify them? Or if we can't quantify them, you know, how can we qualitatively at least speak about them? And then the next question, pushing the lens in a little further then is what you're saying, which is, okay, we are in a situation of a unique 
risk and a unique danger to society. And people feel that this is a worthwhile endeavor to pursue. This is a worthwhile mitigation measure considering um, the risks and the benefits. But here's where things begin to break down because we don't know what the benefits are of a mask mandate in schools. There is incredibly sparse evidence about the actual benefit. Now, this doesn't mean that I am anti-mask. This doesn't mean that I'm saying masks, quote unquote, don't work. It appears from all the evidence that there is some benefit of wearing some masks in some circumstances. There's a huge difference between a surgeon wearing a fit tested N95 and a kid in you know third grade wearing a mask his parents bought off of Etsy that's you know cloth and hanging down from his face for seven hours straight. There's a very big difference and there's a range in between those two things. So we first have to understand the conversation continually is quote about masks. But there's no such thing as masks as this total um, category. There's an enormous range of types of masks and there's a range of contexts in which they are worn. And even very, very mainstream public health people such as Michael Osterholm, Celine Gounder and others have very clearly spoken about the extreme difference in potential benefits of an N95 versus a surgical versus a cloth mask. So we have to be honest about the nuanced differences between different types of masks and the different contexts in which they are worn. Once you move past that element of the discussion, we then have to say, okay, we understand that most kids are not wearing, and for good reason, a fit tested, and 95 for eight hours straight. Um, most of them are wearing some sort of cloth mask and they're wearing it for many, many hours straight. And what does the data show us about that? Well, if you look at what the CDC cites um, for the benefits of, of mask to as a justification for the mask mandates in schools, they cite a wide range of studies that have little to any possible application to children wearing masks in schools from this notorious hairdresser uh, case study to you know studies in uh, other countries where you know for um, where the index case is in a home um, where things that just have no application in a school environment and i wrote an article a while back about an mmwr um, written about a georgia school study and what they found was that there was a benefit in staff wearing masks, but there was no statistically significant benefit of a student mask mandate. Even with 90,000 students, it did not reach statistical significance. Moreover, the authors said in that study that you could not infer causality. So even if there were statistical significance, and this for a while was the only real comparative study about school mask mandates, where we looked at schools with versus schools without um, these mass mandates. All the other studies, there's this famous thing um, that Duke researchers um, did in North Carolina with a million students. Every single person was wearing a mask. There's no control group. You can't say you know what the benefit of something is. If you are, everyone's wearing a mask 
and there's HEPA filters or the windows are open and there's a whole variety of other interventions, you cannot tease out one intervention. You don't know without a control. So what I wrote about recently for The Atlantic was ostensibly the sort of jewel in the CDC's jewel box, so to speak, about their evidence for a mass mandate and where they looked at close to a thousand schools in Arizona where they compared schools with mask mandates versus schools without mask mandates. So the, the CDC, so the, the, in addition to what you're saying is in terms, so, so what I heard you say, and I'll make sure I summarize this, mm -hmm. there may be a benefit for some masks in some situations for some people, but we just cannot quantify that benefit. You're, we're not saying that the, there's no benefit at all. We just don't know the incremental benefit. Correct. The question and, is- and, and based on what you just said, I think it's incredibly reasonable to have people wear masks if they're in a waiting room at a doctor's office, maybe if they're popping into a store or at, you know, they're at a supermarket. I don't think it's unreasonable based on what you just said. We are not exactly sure what the benefit is, but we can see it's reasonable to extrapolate that there's some degree of benefit, particularly over a short duration of time. If everyone's wearing a mask, that may cut down on something. I think that's a reasonable policy decision for a certain amount of time. Right. So the question is now, why, uh, why is there this mask mandate in schools, not in all states, I believe, but I, I live in Illinois and there is a mask mandate in school, actually, mm -hmm. in schools in Illinois. Um, and, and I, you know, I, as, as you answer this, as maybe why did the CDC recommend mask mandates mm -hmm. for children? It's, it's really critical to recognize that this is not necessarily supported by, for example, in Europe, they don't have that. And I think the WHO has some age categories. So, so in essence, the CDC is going out of its way different than the EU and different than WHO in the recommendation. So take us through how did we get here from the CDC to make that recommendation? Right, that's correct. So one of the things I often try to do in my reporting is to help place what's happening in the United States within context of other places, typically with, with Europe or a lot of our quote, like peer nations in, in Western Europe um, specifically, because what a lot of Americans don't realize is that a lot of the policies that the CDC recommends are very, very different from what other public health institutions are recommending. So in, in particular, if we're looking at masks, the World Health Organization repeatedly throughout the pandemic has said they do not recommend masks on kids under age six, period. That's the World Health Organization. The ECDC, the European um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, you know, roughly the CDC's counterpart in Europe, um, they have said, they do not recommend masks on any kids in primary school, period. And these these policy, you know, these policy recommendations have continued throughout the pandemic. OK, this is very different from the CDC, which recommends masks on kids starting at age two. Yeah, so the WHO, the WHO recommends no masking for kids under the age of six, and the European CDC 
recommends no masking for any children in primary school. The CDC took on the op a different stand. Correct. Oh, and also the World Health Organization says for kids age six to six to eleven, they only recommend masks in, in if they meet certain criteria in certain circumstances. So even that they have some hesitancy um, about um, that next age bracket. Moreover, there are a number of countries that have taken that further where they don't have any kids wearing masks in school all the way up through high school or they say wear a mask but only in the hallways you know if they're very crowded so there are a wide range of different mask policies around the world and in particular when we're looking at europe that are very very different from what you know quote unquote the blue states are doing in america and what the cdc has been recommending so there have been a number of public health professionals who have said there is a consensus on this um we know that masks work and there is a consensus that they should be worn by kids in school and we should be following what the CDC says. Um, Ashish Jha Brown has said that um, in his congressional testimony that there was a consensus on this opinion about kids wearing masks in school. But when, unless the consensus is exclusive to America, that's just simply untrue. Now, that doesn't mean that Europe is correct and we're wrong, but at minimum, that certainly suggests that there are a variety of ways for the data to be interpreted about what a reasonable policy decision is. So I think people need to understand. So these are not red state crazy Republicans saying don't mask our kids, our kids. These are many progressive countries that typically are very, you know, aligned with progressives in America. Yet their policy for masking kids is very different from what we're doing here. What did the CDC in America see that the Europeans did not see? I mean, I, I, I presume <laughs> it was not out of vacuum, right? I mean, like, what, what did we see here to, that led to this decision that others did not see or, I don't know? I hope that's a rhetorical question. I mean, there, there, there is no answer. Um, in a long article I wrote for New York Magazine about the, the um, school masking guidance, I dug into every single study that the CDC cited um, as evidence of its school masking guideline. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, we had the hairdresser study, they had studies you know, where they were looking at people in their homes, they had studies, amazingly enough, in I think I think it was Switzerland, um, but at least one, if not several countries, where they found that schools without wearing masks had a had an equal or better uh, case rate than schools with masks. They they actually were in their citations were linking to studies that showed the opposite of what they were trying to say. So I don't know if someone was asleep while they were putting this list together or what, but the list simply was not applicable to schools. And like I said, the only one where you actually are looking with a you know, somewhat comparative analysis, where you're looking at schools with versus those without, didn't even find a statistically significant benefit. And um, so there is no clear answer as to why the CDC would arrive at such a different conclusion, other than the fact that, to my mind, it's not simply about whether masks work or don't work, quote unquote. I think what a lot of the, the debate is missing is that that maybe is not the right question. The question is, 
even if they work, to what end? And, because, and clearly, that is what a lot of the regulators and public health people in Europe have decided. They, it's not that they are seeing different evidence than the people in America are seeing. They, they have access to all the same studies. It's that they have said from the very beginning, the value of normalcy for children, the value of being in school, because that's a whole other issue, how we had schools in many parts of the country that were closed for a full year, while kids, their counterparts in Europe, were in school that whole school year, last school year. So from school closures to the various mitigation measures, that normalcy is valued differently in these countries in Europe than it is here in America. And they did not have magical schools there where everyone had uh, their own private HEPA filter next to their desk. No, many of those schools, the only mitigation measure they did was to simply open the windows. And many of them didn't even do that. There was not this magical thing happening there where they mitigated the risk in a different way. They just have a different viewpoint on what's valuable for children in society relative to the extraordinarily low risk that most healthy kids face from this virus. One of the things you mentioned in the article, David, is um, um, uh, criticizing the CDC for uh, inflating, I guess, the value of uh, risk mitigation with masks uh, that, you know, it, 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 again, it, it lowers the incidence by three times and so on. And this was, this claim was repeated several times. Do you want to take listeners through how did you analyze this to, to come to the conclusion? Uh, sure. Of that? So I, I fell into to investigating this particular study of these um, that was published in MMWR, that's the CDC's journal, um, about a thousand schools in Arizona, because the right off the bat, this effect where um, they said they found three and a half times that the schools without mask mandates had three and a half times more outbreaks than the schools with mandates. And all of the infectious disease people and others in public health who I converse with every day, when this study came out, my phone was just, you know, the text messages were just ding, 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 because everyone was saying, what? Three and a half, that's 350% difference. That is completely outside anything else we've seen. Even the Bangladesh study, which isn't about kids, isn't in schools, even that found um, there was an 11% reduction, you know, and this is for surgical masks among, I think it was adults over 50 in rural Bangladeshi villages. <laughs> so even that, this was an outlier. And when you see an outlier effect, that warrants a little bit of, if not skepticism, certainly it warrants a little bit of investigation. And one of the things that, that started off with this study was that they said it ran from July 15th to August 31st. But I started looking at the calendars for some of these schools that were in the study. And lo and behold, it turned out that more than 85, I think it was somewhere between 85 and 90% of the schools didn't even begin until August. And I said, how can you write in this, the title of the study, how can you say that this ran from July 15th to August 31st when almost all the schools weren't even open in the month of July? 
So I emailed with the corresponding author of the study and I said, look, you know, I, I'm looking at the calendars. I, I'm seeing very different start dates here. I'm, I'm confused. Can you explain this to me? And to my surprise, she indeed um, acknowledged, oh, yes, many of the schools um, did not start in July. And in fact, the median start date of the two different groups of the masking schools versus the no mask was August 5th versus August 3rd. So she admitted that the schools without mask mandates were studied longer than the schools with mask mandates. I just want that to resonate with the listeners here for a moment, that in epidemiology, this is sort of a fundamental thing that you need to control for. If you are comparing the incidence of something occurring between two different groups, you cannot study one group longer than the other group without disclosing that and without adjusting for that difference in per person exposure. But the authors of this study did neither. They did not disclose the difference in exposure time, nor did they adjust for this difference in exposure time. Now the authors say, eh, the median start date was different by two days, but that is not remotely a precise enough metric to use to actually tease out what the effect might be. Some schools were open three weeks longer than other schools. So if some of the schools that were open had double or triple the number of students, and those were the schools that were open longer, that alone could account for the entire effect that they found in this study. This is not my opinion. This is the viewpoint of numerous experts who I interviewed for the article who poured through the study themselves. So this was kind of the, the original thing that popped for me. And when I corresponded with the lead author, and then ultimately I had looped in all of the uh, top people at MMWR, the journal, and I said, at minimum, we'd like to see the data set so we can look through and figure out what's going on here. And I had asked them repeatedly, and every single time they refused. And, and that kind of pushes toward the larger issue. Um, I, I could get into the to the second uh, big thing. I know I've been talking without a break here. If you want me to continue. No, no, keep going. Okay. So the first, so the differentiation I want to make here is that, and, and you know this as someone in medicine, every study is going to have limitations. That's normal. That's fine. And it's perfectly normal and appropriate for studies to be critiqued when they have a review because they have limitations. So in this study, we know they didn't control for vaccination status. They didn't control for community rates over time. These are significant limitations of the study and perfectly reasonable for people to point them out. And many uh, people did point those out. But those are listed in the study. To me, that's fundamentally different than this thing about the exposure time difference, which was not disclosed. And that, to me, was the thing that was so worrisome. It's one thing if, the, if you have a bunch of limitations that are listed, and that can be a topic of discussion and argument amongst experts about whether and how much these limitations matter. That's different from not disclosing a significant limitation. Did you ask, the, the, lead, did you ask the lead author why this was not disclosed? 
Um, I didn't ask her why they didn't disclose it. No, I just said, I, you know, I see that this isn't here. And, and I also said, if you don't want to give it to me as a journalist, that's fine. I have a number of highly credentialed experts who are very concerned about this study. And any of them will be happy to reach out to you if you, if you don't want to give the data set to me, just as some pesky journalist, it needs to come from a colleague, from another academic. Nevertheless, um, the authors refused. And the second thing I found that was not disclosed was that the study says there were 782 schools in Maricopa County. There were two counties in this study where they looked at the schools, Maricopa and Pima counties. And they said there were 782 schools in Maricopa. There's only one problem. There are not 782 public non-charter schools in Maricopa County, the way they listed in the study. And there's a very long saga that I won't get into um, on the podcast with you about how I ultimately was able to get this list of schools because they refused over and over to give me the list of schools. Um, but I found on the list from the um, county of Maricopa itself, they said there were only 757. There's the Auditor General from Arizona had a number that they said was even lower than that because there were, um, if you, depends how you count certain schools that may not have reopened the school year, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of details. Ultimately, I compelled the state of Arizona through, a, through a, a public records request to send me, I said, I want the same exact list that you gave to the authors. Because the authors said, and the journal itself, CDC Journal said, we're not giving you the list. If you want the list, you need to go to the state of Arizona, to the education department. There was no explanation for why they could, why they can't just give it to me themselves. That's bizarre. That raises a concern. You're telling me I can get the list, but you refuse to give it to me yourself. No, you have to go to the state of Arizona. So ultimately I was able to get the list. And on this list, there were schools that were closed. There were preschools. There were schools that were virtual academies where the kids aren't even in a building. And there were some 80 or 90 entries for vocational programs. These are not schools. It was a program you could go to Chandler High School and take an automotive class or an electronics class. And that was listed for whatever reason, the state had listed those as schools, but they were not schools. They were merely programs inside those schools. Those were regular students. So the question becomes, if you have schools that are closed, schools that are virtual academies, and, the, and all of these 80 or 90 vocational programs that are merely a program inside of a school, the number at most was something like 740 or 750. We were off by a huge number from this 782 in the study. The question is, how can, and by the way, this was not a typo because the error carried through the table. All of the numbers added up to the 782. So it was not merely a typo. How do you know the number of outbreaks in schools that don't exist? How can they know? That is the question. So I posed this question to the authors and to the editors at MMWR. And their response to me was when I brought up the start dates problem and the number of schools problem, they said, there are no errors in this study. And I wrote back and I said, hey, no, no offense, but if you're not letting anyone see the data set, how do we know? No one can know. And they said, thank you very much. There are no errors. We are not giving you the data set. We're done. 
And so to me, that there's something here, whether you are in favor of masks or not in favor of masks, that's a philosophical and a policy decision and discussion that is completely separate from our nation's public health agency having a, a, a study used to justify a public policy that affects millions of children, because this study was the highlight study. Rochelle Walensky mentioned it in multiple White House briefings. She mentioned it in multiple TV interviews. This study was mentioned in every single major media outlet in the country with this three and a half times difference. And yet, when they were presented with, and this wasn't my opinion, this wasn't a critique of the methodology, this was presented with clear evidence of specific discrepancies of the data itself. And the evidence was from official sources, from the state of Arizona, from the county of Maricopa, and the evidence regarding the start dates was acknowledged by the one of the authors of the study herself. And then they were presented with this evidence of the discrepancies, doubled down and refused to share the data set. There is no way anyone can ever know or verify the results of this study because no one is allowed to see the data. I cannot imagine how anyone in public health or how any American citizen can possibly think that this is reasonable or okay. Why do you think some people think it is reasonable and okay though? I mean, I mean, you, you realize obviously there are some people who, who just will take that face value. You happen to be an investigative journalist that dug into deep into it and so on. But there are so many people that either don't have the time or the intellect or really the bandwidth to do this. And they see this on the CDC and they say, okay, if the CDC is saying this, it must be true and we're not gonna really argue with this. And, and so so how do we, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's impossible for everyone to investigate everything. So are we- But I did. Right, <laughs> you, you did. But that's why I'm here. I mean, that's, I, I think the answer to your question is, Ideally, that's what journalists should do. Now, the New York Times and, uh, you know, right on down to a zillion television networks and everyone else merely just repeated this finding from the study. None of them actually looked at the study itself. And I think, to my mind, to answer your question is, what is the role of journalism? Is it to merely repeat what government agencies tell us and it's not just about public health you know should we just repeat what the department of defense tells us about something should we just should journalists just repeat what a corporation lists as something or is the role of a journalist to investigate and not only repeat what's being said but find out the veracity of that statement to begin with so i i think uh degree of skepticism, unfortunately, is now warranted. And this is just one example of where the CDC has refused any degree of transparency. Um, and this was over and over and over again, refusing to share the data, even when they were presented with this clear evidence from highly credible sources from you know, the state itself with different numbers and different statistics. So. I don't blame people initially for believing the CDC on things, but boy, it's awfully hard to have a degree of trust when you look at something like this as a case study. 
David, what has been the reaction to the article you wrote? Uh, I know it's been just like four or five days um, you wrote it. Have you had a lot of either backlash from folks who are pro-CDC versus folks that were really intrigued? I was clearly intrigued, obviously, right? Because I have a very open mind and I really want to really understand. In fact, that's why I'm in medicine, because I believe that it's okay to ask questions. So, uh, and that's why I, I reached out to you. But but what has been the general reaction uh, to the article you wrote about this? Um, the reaction overall has been, I think, one of, it, dep it depends who's looking at it, but overall one of outrage, one of confirming for people what they already suspected. And then there's a group of people that no matter what, if you say anything that can be conceived of as somewhat critical of the public health establishment that they will dismiss it whether it's you know there are, there are, i saw a few people on twitter with just saying this is garbage article this guy was cherry picking he did this but yet and then someone wrote back and said okay what are the specific things that were cherry picked what are the specific problems and the person said i don't have time to to get into that <laughs> so i mean this article was not my opinion. This was an investigative piece where I, I interviewed a number of experts in public health, including a former CDC epidemiologist who is very pro-mask, by the way. Um, she strongly believes that masks are an important intervention, but she felt that the way this study was presented to the public was so wrong that she had the integrity to say, you know what, even though I really believe that masks are an important intervention, I can't stay silent when the CDC is using bad science to justify a policy. Even though it's a policy that I agree with, we shouldn't be using bad science to justify this policy. So I think that took an incredible amount of courage and integrity for this epidemiologist one of whom in the article to speak out in that way. And in fact, the, the Atlantic as an outlet, I mean, in general, as, a, as, a, as an outlet, uh, as a press outlet is, I mean, is, is generally pro-government, right? I mean, in general, it's, it's, it's more left as opposed to right and center. it's like left of center, I guess. Is that a fair assessment? I, I think the Atlantic is, would generally be con considered by most people to be somewhat mainstream slash right. left of center, which is where most of the quote unquote prestige media sort of falls, whether it's the Atlantic, the New Yorker, the New York Times. Right. Most of these publications are somewhat quote unquote center left, quote unquote, you know, toward, you know, the establishment, so to speak. So it's certainly... And, my, and by the way, you know, my own politics should be irrelevant in this. But, Agreed. Agreed. But I am not. I am not a conservative. I'm not. A, you know, I've I've never voted for a libertarian. I did. I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't. None of this is comes from an ideological. It's sort journalism. Of, it's journalism, and I think I, I, I totally agree. And I've actually. You know, I didn't tell you this, but growing up, I actually always wanted to be a journalist. I just never thought of myself as a good writer. So I I, I never was able to do this. And I, I have a very, very skeptical views of journalism today than, than how it used to be. And I know I'm taking a lot of your time, but there are a couple of things I really want to ask you really quick. Uh, one is um, there are lots of kids that did get vaccinated. 
uh, you know, since since we had the um, uh, approval for kids from five to uh, for, from twelve and five to eleven and all that, my question is, if you know, if the kids are vaccinated and mm-hmm. the teachers are vaccinated, why is there still a mask mandate? Uh, can you um, comment on that? And the second question I have is now that we're taping in the mix of the Omnicorn uh, you know, uh, surge, I guess, or the wave where hostels are really filling up and, and all of that, mm-hmm. um, do you think that there are exceptions now where you say, okay, well, you know, we don't know what's going on. This is very contagious. Put a mask on because we really don't know what's going on. Well, the first, the, to, the, to your first uh, question, Unvaccinated children are at lower risk of hospitalization and severe disease than many, if not most, vaccinated adults. There are great data out of the UK that show this very clearly. Alastair Monroe, um, who's a physician in the UK, um, has written about this, and there are data about this in the States. So this is, this is not in dispute. Unvaccinated kids are at lower risk than most of vaccinated adults who have the liberty to go into crowded restaurants without a mask, to go to bars, to go to all sorts of public venues and public events, and, you know, concerts, whatever it may be, and not wear a mask. So we have to ask ourselves, even putting vaccination aside, if these unvaccinated kids are at lower risk than all of these adults, why are we imposing a mitigation measure on these kids that is not imposed on adults. So that would be to answer your question with a question. Um, And then to me, then the kids being vaccinated just takes that same premise and amplifies it. That kids are at such a low risk for most kids, not all, it's not zero risk, but kids have also never been at zero risk of anything. That's part of being a human. Nothing is zero risk. But again, these things, I think, the, to me, one of the biggest problems in the pandemic and what I'm, I'm writing a book about kids and schools in America during the pandemic right now um, for MIT Press. And one of the things that I want to talk about in the book and that I think about often is there is this conflation of science or conflation of medicine with philosophical decisions that, and this is kind of just bringing our conversation here full circle, because I think we started off with this. The idea that Anthony Fauci, the idea that he is the arbiter of life decisions based on risk and reward or cost and benefit makes no sense. He should inform the public about what the risks are but that's very different from then giving guidance on how we should conduct our lives. Because maximum mitigation of a virus is not synonymous with human flourishing. So in March of 2020, it may have been very reasonable for everyone to lock down at home and close the doors and wipe your groceries down and huddle under the bed because we all were frightened and didn't know what was happening. But there's something very, very different from that and having a public 
health guidance and ultimately policies that essentially are based on the notion that mitigating a virus is more important than a list of a hundred other things that equal living a flourishing life. And that's particularly so for kids. Childhood is vanishingly short. And we have to think very carefully about the types of interventions that we impose on children. And I know I'm not crazy saying that because countries in Europe did things very, very differently than we did here. What's going to happen with the with this new variant uh, right now that's raging through, you know, I mean, with cases in New York, actually, where you are, there's a lot of hospitals are filled up and so forth. Do you think that we are heading towards lockdown, school closure. I mean, you've seen obviously in the press that, for example, Harvard is going virtual until the end of January and, and, and other things. Do you think that, um, I know it's not March 2020, but it's a new variant and there's a lot of things that we still don't know. Unfortunately, it's happening despite vaccinations and boosting and all of that stuff, but it's what it is. And I think there's a lot of confusion amongst the public into what do we do next? And I realize you're not a physician, but you know what, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? Where do you see us going? Well, from talking with various infectious disease people who I speak with every day and just answering from, again, because any regular citizen, once they are informed, has just as much of a right of thinking about their risk benefit calculation as, as any sort of public health official. Um, with the exception of understanding that an infectious disease is something where we have responsibility to others. It's not just about the individual, but once you understand what those things are, so we know that the vaccines, at least this is what all the evidence shows, is that the vaccines are, thank God, incredibly useful with reducing the likelihood of severe disease, even with Omicron. Thank God, this is great. So the vaccines are really, really beneficial to the individual recipient. What it appears to not be the case is that vac these vaccines do not seem to be effective in stopping infection or in stopping transmission. Um, so it certainly makes sense for adults to be vaccinated to protect themselves. That's a wise decision to be vaccinated. Why, why would you possibly not want to protect yourself? But the notion that um, the vaccines are also preventing transmission in this manner, the evidence doesn't seem to be supporting that. There may be some diminishment of that versus not being vaccinated at all. But look, the cases are skyrocketing in places like New York, which has a very high vaccination rate. Um, so we know, and I, you know, highly anecdotal, I know three people right now who all are vaxxed to the max and they all got COVID. Um, so Fortunately, hopefully from the vaccines, they will not have any serious disease. So I'm not saying it wasn't smart to be vaccinated, but the notion that um, it appears from, from everyone I talk to that, and this is not a novel thing to say, is that this is, this is it. Omicron, we're not, no one's escaping this thing. This is endemic. It's not leaving us. It's incredibly contagious and People hopefully will be smart and protect themselves with the vaccines. But at a certain point, 
shutting things down or merely temporizing measures. So if a hospital truly is overwhelmed, if you're in a specific area where hospitals are overwhelmed, I could see there being a very reasonable decision to impose certain mitigation measures, which again, bring full circle to March, um, this sort of let's flatten the curve. We need to make sure that the hospitals have the available capacity. We need to try to slow things down. That's reasonable. But if you're in a place where the hospitals are not overwhelmed, it really doesn't seem to make sense to do that. Moreover, if we are going to use mitigation measures to try to flatten the curve, so to speak, schools should be the very last place to close and the very first place to open if they were closed. Because for two reasons, one, kids are at the lowest risk out of anyone, and two, kids need school in a way that adults don't need to be in their office. It is not synonymous for the adult in the laptop class who can Zoom their meetings with their colleagues at the ad agency or at the financial firm. That is not analogous to a child doing Zoom school. They are not the same thing. And I think we've conflated those things and pretended that they were the same. And for many kids who had lots of resources and happened to have the right type of intellect or motivation, it was okay for them. And it still might be okay. But there are many, many kids that did not have those opportunities, whether it was children who were in a well-off home, but maybe they had certain learning challenges or emotional challenges or whatever it may be, or whether it's the many, many millions of children who are in homes that didn't have the type of resources necessary to be able to conduct school alone in their bedroom every day for a year. David, uh, thank you so much. This is, uh, I took uh, a full hour of your time. I'm very appreciative for your time, but this was um, really great to have you on and, and just uh, go through the process that you went through as an investigative journalist when you see something and you try really to get to the bottom of it because, um, you know, um, hopefully listeners realize this is not a political show. There's really no agenda here whatsoever. We're just trying to understand few facts. And, and I think you put it on uh, beautifully. Um, is there anything I should have asked you that I totally forgot? I overlooked that you want to maybe have uh, last uh, comments or anything I may have uh, missed? Um, I, I know that this was great. I mean, you really gave me uh, uh, an embarrassing amount of time to pontificate, but um, but I, I think the idea of credentialism and the idea that only certain people are supposed to discuss what's appropriate or not appropriate, I think has been one of the biggest mistakes of the pandemic. Again, an epidemiologist is not a psychologist. An epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist like Anthony Fauci, they are not psychologists, they are not educators, they are not economists. They don't have the breadth, no one does, the breadth of knowledge about society overall. And I think in the very beginning of a pandemic, the quote unquote precautionary principle is reasonable where mitigating this virus is the only thing that matters. But very shortly thereafter, that needs to shift. And we need to have a holistic perspective on what is reasonable and what's not reasonable to expect of people and in the area of particular focus that I've been interested in, in with children and schools. And there are vulnerable people who need to be protected. 
COVID is real, it's dangerous, and people need to be protected. But that's different from saying we should be shutting down schools or imposing all sorts of burdens on children, that we are asking children to bear a burden for others in society. And that's something that requires a conversation. And it's something that is not just, you are not just a piece of garbage if you wanna question that. You are not automatically some lunatic or some you know, insane person who thinks that the vaccines have microchips in them. I am on the phone with people every day at some of our nation's top institutions, um, places, you know, I, the, your listeners will know every Ivy League institution, and I'm talking with physicians and epidemiologists at these places, and the vast majority of them always are talking with me off the record because they are either told explicitly by the boss, by the head of their department, that they are not allowed to talk to the media, or it's just simply an implicit message. When, when the narrative around you, when all of your colleagues are saying something, when the CDC is saying something, when the media is saying, when everyone's on the same page and you work at a large academic institution, or even if you're just a, uh, you know, a suburban physician somewhere, it is very, very hard to have the, the wherewithal and the courage and the ability to speak out. So what I can say is I get emails practically every single day from doctors contacting me who've read one or another article of mine saying, thank you so much for, for making this public. I agree with you. I can't talk about this publicly, but I'm glad you're writing about this. So I think the average person needs to understand how much of a dissent there actually is, including from highly credentialed people at some of our nation's top institutions. David Zweig, uh, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate your time. I'm thrilled to speak with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, folks, thanks so much for listening and for being part of the show. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you being with us for this past hour, listening to David Zweig and what he had to say about the CDC's recommendations for masking children in schools. Um, I would love for you to support the show by subscribing to it, rating it, writing a brief review, and referring a friend or a colleague. Also, you can check out my website, chadinabhan.com, and my YouTube channel, chadinabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Very much appreciate your support. Let me know uh, how you think, what you think of the show, any ideas, any opinions, any suggestions. You can uh, certainly uh, send me a direct message on Twitter, at chadinabhan. And as a loyal listener, make sure you reach out to me and let me know uh, if you want one of the famous podcast t-shirts, I would love to send you one. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote by Sir William Osler. The best preparation for tomorrow is to do today's work superbly well. Until next time, take care.